Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. We're going to continue in our series in John. So if you haven't already, just flip it over to John chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at the story of the wedding at Cana. And I almost named this this sermon uh, every college student's favorite miracle uh, of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, But I didn't. I I resisted doing that. Uh, But the purpose of the book of John, as we looked at this a couple weeks ago, uh, was that Jesus is God. John wanted us to know that Jesus is God and that we should believe that Jesus is God. And as we see he's God and we believe in this, this changes everything. And so we unpacked that from the beginning of John chapter 1. We looked at John's evidence for why this is true in creation. Uh, John the Baptist, a different John, his witness, as well as Jesus coming in the flesh, the incarnation. Last week, Matt Harris, very thankful for him preaching in uh, my stead, as many of us were at the retreat. He taught on the first followers of Jesus, what it meant to be a disciple. Um, If you were at the retreat, Bland Mason from City on a Hill, uh, Brookline, was teaching us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be called by Christ. And so for each of us, there is a call for us to consider whether we should follow Jesus or not. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've, you've received that call. The believing and discipleship are not separate categories. They're one in the same. But also, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're just exploring or you're skeptical and you're, you're here, we're glad you're here. But for all of us, we need to consider who Jesus is. Is Jesus the Son of God? If he is who he says he is, and he did come to die for our sins, that's something you've got to wrestle and grapple with. You've got to wrestle with what he's done for you. And when we see this, we see that John, what he wants you and I to consider is that Jesus is worthy of following. Jesus is worthy for you and I to give all of our lives to, to be willing to lay everything down. And John wants to convince you of this. And he knows that if he can just help you see the glory of God in Jesus, as it told us back in chapter 114, that as Jesus came into the world, that we saw his glory, glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you can see that, then you're going to want to follow Jesus. If you can see how glorious and good Jesus is, you're going to want to receive Jesus. This is why John Piper, when he taught through the book of John, said that for every text I look at in this gospel, I am praying, show me your glory. Grant me your grace. Show me more of the greatness of Christ and grant me more likeness to Christ. I want you to see how good Jesus is and I want you to experience him for yourself. We were in New Hampshire last weekend, and it's really difficult to describe how beautiful New England in the fall is to someone. You've got to see it for yourself. So we were in New Hampshire, and you know, up there, you get leaf changing much faster than you do in Boston. We're starting to see some of the leaves changing this week. But I was, as I was looking at the trees each morning, every rainy morning of this past weekend, um, just blown away by the beauty of New England. And I have so many friends who've never been to New England, and I try to explain what New England in the fall is like. I'm like, you just can't understand how beautiful these trees are. It looks like the sky is on fire. And I can describe it, and I can send them pictures. And no matter how much I tell them, no matter how many pictures I tell them uh, or show, send them, it doesn't compare to the real thing. You've got to see it for yourself. 
But if I talk about it enough, my hope is that eventually they're going to want to see it for themselves. In John chapters 2 through 12, it's often been called the book of signs because John describes all these stories of Jesus which are trying to show the real thing. These miracles that Jesus performs that are meant to point to a greater reality, pointing toward the idea of who Jesus is as the Son of God, pointing toward what the kingdom of God is going to be like, how someone is saved, who can be saved, what it means to be right with God. And so these miracles, these signs are, as D.A. Carson says, not simply naked displays of power. They're not just meant to show us how awesome Jesus is. But they're significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. I don't want you to just see the picture of fall in New England. I want you to experience it. I don't want you to just just see what salvation could be like. I want you to experience it for yourself. And so as we come to Jesus' first recorded miracle, it seems like a weird story to try to communicate this reality. How does a wedding... And turning water into wine, show us what Jesus is like. How does it show us the kingdom? How does it show us how you can be made right with God? So I want to look back at verses 1 through 3 and give you a little bit of backstory. We see on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, that little place, Cana in Galilee, would be near the hometown of where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Cana would have been just a few miles down the road. Uh, Nazareth was a tiny little backwoods town. Jesus came from the middle of nowhere. Cana was even more remote than that. Um, This is... I think the only time that Cana is even mentioned in the Bible, I think the only other time is in reference to Nathaniel uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, referring to that he was from Cana. And so this is a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. We see in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, at the end of verse 1, the, the mother of Jesus was there, so they, they likely knew them. They were family friends. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so they're all there together. And we need to understand that a wedding in Jesus' time in first century Israel was a throwdown. It was the most incredible party you've ever imagined. Imagine like the coolest wedding you've ever seen on Instagram times a million. Um, We do weddings big in America. We have like hashtags and 73 bridal showers. It doesn't even hold a candle to what they did in the first century. They actually would have, uh, before even the wedding, they would have a year-long betrothal. Now, betrothal was sort of like an engagement, but up like one notch. You were legally, technically married, but you hadn't consummated the marriage. And to get out of this betrothal, you actually had to get divorced. So they did that for a year. And then typically on a Wednesday, not sure why it was a Wednesday, but it was always a Wednesday, um, they would end the betrothal period, and the groom and his family would go from there and march to the, the, the bride's house. And along the way, they would sing songs. And as they got to the house, they would have these beautiful speeches that they would say, and in, in just talking about how beautiful and wonderful the bride was. And then they would collect the bride and her party, and they would march back to the groom's house, and there would be this giant throwdown, this giant party with food and wine and all sorts of drinks and dancing and celebration. And so this was a big, big deal in their culture. Now, in this story, we see that verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, she came to him and said they had no wine. So in our culture, we're wondering, what's the big deal? Why why does it matter that they ran out of wine? Why is Mary, the mother of Jesus, so panicked about this? Well, why would this require a miracle? So a few things we need to understand. Again, it's the first century, in the middle of nowhere. If you run out of wine, you couldn't go down to Total Wines and more and pick up more. Like, 
there's no Trader Joe's. You're not getting any three-buck chuck. You, this is it. If, if you run out of wine, you're out. They, they had no more. Secondly is this would create deep shame for someone in an Eastern culture. If you grew up in the West, we don't understand shame the way that someone who grew up in the East would. If you grew up in an Eastern culture, in Asia, the Middle East, or, or Africa, you understand the, the shame-based culture and the honor-based culture. If you were to run out, it was shameful for your family. So maybe this man and his family were really poor, and they were trying to stretch their dollar as far as they possibly could. And they were like, man, it's tight. We're not sure if the wedding budget's going to allow for this. We're just going to have to do the best we can and hope that, it all, that people don't drink too much. Could have been that he was stingy. We don't know, but it would have led to deep shame. But thirdly, the, the groom's family could have been sued. There could have been legal action taken against the groom by the bride's family because he lied saying that he could provide for this bride. So this is a pretty tense situation. Mary sees this. She goes to Jesus. She says there is no wine. She feels some level of responsibility. She knows that Jesus has been a good son. Likely at this point, her husband Joseph has died. She's relied upon Jesus because if you're going to have to rely on any son, Jesus is a good one to rely on. And she goes to him and says, there's no wine. And then Jesus' response is so striking. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, at first glance, with 21st century ears, we're like, he said, what? He called her, what? Did he just talk back to his mama? Like, like growing up at my house, that was the one thing you didn't do. My parents divorced when I was 12 years old. Even after that, if I had back-talked my mom, my, my dad still would have killed me. Like, we don't, I mean, this seems crazy, but we need to understand that he's not being disrespectful. In fact, it has more of the tone of ma'am, like you would say in the South. It's respectful, but it is abrupt. He, he's not being like a middle schooler saying, I'll do it later, mom. But he is saying, I have my eyes fixed on something different. I have my, something different in mind. And so we see that Jesus is, work here points, first of all, to something new. He's a vision for a deeper reality. In verse 5, Mary, we're not sure if she just kind of brushed off Jesus' light rebuke or just trusted that he would do what he was going to do, but she says, do whatever he tells you. And we see in verse 6 that he takes these six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, and he takes the water and turns it into wine. Now, in the story, we need to see that something new is happening because there's a callback here to creation. There, there's a callback in the story. And so a callback in, a, in liter, liter, literature, a literary device, it's used in books and movies to call back to something in the past, to make something have new meaning. And so an example of this would be in the Avengers. I love Marvel movies. I try to limit my number of Marvel movie illustrations just to not nerd out on you, but I love them. And Avengers Endgame, there's a callback in that movie where Tony Stark, Iron Man, tells his daughter, I love you 3,000. That seems like a, just a beautiful way of saying, oh, I just love you so much. Here's the nerd moment. If you total up the number of minutes from the beginning of the first Iron Man movie to the end of Spider-Man Far From Home, where Spider-Man is mourning the death, spoiler alert, sorry, of Iron Man, it's exactly 3,000 minutes. That's wild. It's a callback to say, I've loved you this entire time. I love you always. Here in the story, there is a callback to the very beginning because in verse 1, on the third day, if you jump back to John chapter 1 and look at the testimony of John as day 1, 
And then jump to chapter 20 or verse 29 where it says, the next day, that's day two, John 1, 35, the next day, that's day three, 43, the next day, that's day four. What would adding three days to that be? Math people, seven. How many days were there in creation? Seven. This is a picture of Jesus doing something new that's like creation. And so when we understand Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he is coming to make all things new. And this helps us understand Isaiah 43, 19, where it says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And if you look just a couple verses before that in Isaiah, it describes God as a creator. Jesus is coming to make all things new. And this miracle points to him doing something new. But secondly, we also see that creation itself has marriage rooted into it. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, as man and woman were created, Adam and Eve, they become one flesh, as this picture of them glorifying God together as complementary people in a marriage. And so we see creation in this, and then we see the process by which Jesus does this. Verse 6, he takes these six stone jars, and it would have been stone instead of earthenware, so it wouldn't get contaminated. Each we see in, in verse 6 was about 20 or 30 gallons, so, uh, so 120 to 180 gallons. But think like the size of a hot tub, so maybe like the size of the baptismal pool behind me, full of water. And they would use this as a way to purify both the hands of the people and the utensils that they would use to eat. And this is a big deal under Jewish law because you wanted to make sure that you didn't defile yourself. Mark chapter 7, we see this interaction with Jesus and the teachers of the law who were having problems with Jesus' disciples eating without washing their hands, which is gross, but doesn't defile you. They believed it would actually make you unclean on the inside. Jesus was trying to say, no, 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 it's actually your heart that's already unclean. So what they would do under Jewish law is they would go there and the servants would ladle water out of the jars, pour it over the hands of the people, pour it over their utensils, and they would be considered ceremonially, ceremonially clean. So what Jesus is doing with this Jewish rite is he's taking the old way of being pure before God and making a new way. Verse seven, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the water, fill the jars with water and they, and they filled them up to the brim. There were all sorts of ways that people in the old law were to be made right with God, to purify themselves. Don't eat this, don't do that. And what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to do away with that. I came to, to, came to fulfill it. And I'm going to fulfill it by filling up those old jars, those old ways of being made right with God to the very brim so that you know that there's nothing left to fulfill. Everything has been done. And on top of that, I'm going to make it new. I'm going to give you grace upon grace by turning this old rite of our purification into this beautiful new wine that you're going to drink and it's going to make you new on the inside. It's going to make you completely new. I'm going to give you even more grace. And so the, the, the new wine that Jesus offers is a symbol of what the kingdom is like, flowing with mercy and grace and joy and forgiveness. But this new way to be right with God also requires a new way to relate to God. Jumping back to Mary and the way that Jesus interacted with his mother, what Jesus was telling her is that you have to relate to me in a new way. You can't just relate to me as your mother. You have to relate to me as if I'm your savior. 
And when we consider the the new way that Jesus offers us, how do you relate to Jesus? Maybe this morning you need to think about Jesus in a new way. Maybe you think about Jesus as the occasional help that gets you out of a jam, but most of the time you've kind of got life figured out. I'm not going to make you raise your hand if that's you. Maybe you think of Jesus as a good teacher. You think of Jesus as someone who's going to give good morals and good ethics. But what Jesus is claiming is that he is our savior. He is your only hope. That he's your Lord, that he's the one who gets to tell you what to do and will lead you to life and joy everlasting. So not only does Jesus point to something new, he secondly points to something better. He replaces the old covenant, but makes it an even better covenant. Look at verse eight. It It says, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was sort of like a wedding planner. Now, I found myself recently, I'm beginning to dad watch movies. I don't know if you know what dad watching a movie is. It's when you walk into a room and your kids are watching a movie and you have no intention of watching the movie, but you kind of just end up standing there like this and you watch the movie. I have the entire gist of the Gilmore Girls now just from dad watching movies. And so I found myself the other day doing that with Father of the Bride. My kids were watching that. It was an old movie from when I was a kid. And there's this character in the Father of the Bride named Frank, played by Martin Short. And he's the wedding planner. And he's really eccentric. And he's running around. And he has this beautiful eye for, for beauty and making things wonderful and making things so that everyone is enjoying the wedding and that everything goes off without a hitch. That's what, I, it's what you need to imagine here. This, this master of the feast is going to take the wedding and make sure that everything goes like it's supposed to that the food arrives when it's supposed to, that the drink arrives when it's supposed to. And he would be the first person to take a new batch of wine and test it to make sure it was acceptable for the wedding. And so you can imagine in verse nine, where it says that the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine. You can, you can imagine him tasting it. It touches his lips and his eyes widen and his jaw drops. And he lets out, lets out a satisfied Ah, and he drinks deeply of this incredible wine. And he goes looking for the bridegroom because it says in verse nine, he didn't know where it came from, even though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom because the natural assumption would be that the bridegroom was responsible for this. And he calls the bridegroom over and he exclaims to him, he says, everyone serves the good wine first and then people have drunk, when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. What he means is that typically at a wedding, you would give the good stuff first, you'd give the pinot first, people get drunk, and as people get drunk, they lose their sense of taste, and then you slide in the box wine at the end so that people don't notice. He said, that's typically what people do, but you have kept the good wine until now. You've saved the good stuff until last. But what that means is that the first batch of wine had to be pretty good, but the second batch of wine was even better. It shows the generosity that was saved to the end, and we see that Jesus brings the better wine that is better than all the good stuff that you could experience in this world. Isaiah 25 tells us, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Wine is a symbol of the kingdom of God, of the everlasting joy that Jesus provides. I got to experience this at a wedding, probably one of the coolest weddings I've ever been to. We had some neighbors, Josh and Courtney, when we lived in Birmingham, 
that I got to perform their wedding. It was a really cool uh, story. Uh, Josh, I, mean, I think I may, maybe mentioned him before. Um, Josh was built like a motorcycle mechanic. Tons of tattoos, but he cut hair. It was a really jarring uh, thing to look at him and know what he did for a living. Um, loved the guy, the most intense person you've ever met. He like, would sand his cabinets at 11 o'clock at night in his front yard. And I'm like peering out, looking at him. Another story for another day. So I, I go and do his wedding. And at the wedding, his grandfather has made hundreds and hundreds of bottles of homemade blueberry and strawberry wine. The most incredible thing I think I've ever tasted. And it struck me as I thought about this, and I thought about the the beautiful display that this was, is that when you make wine like that, it's intentional. It's a delicate process. You've got to pick the grapes and the berries at the exact right time to harvest to make sure the sugar and the acid and the tannins are all at the right place. And to be that intentional means that you have to look ahead. It means that his grandfather was looking forward to the day of his wedding with great anticipation. And he looked forward to that wedding saying, I'm going to do something beautiful and intentional to show you how much I love you. And that's the same way that God has loved us by giving us his son. That he intentionally looked down and sent Jesus at the exact right moment to die for our sins, to pour out his blood, which we represent as wine in communion. He did it with such beautiful intentionality. The second is it was lavish. There were hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine. They were giving bottles of wine away at the end of the wedding for people to take home. We see that Jesus takes these huge vats of wine showing this this mercy that overflows for our joy. And so when we read God's invitation in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We need to see the goodness of God in this, that he gives us an intentional, lavish display of his love. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's not saying that other things aren't good. It's not saying that romance isn't good. It's not saying that friendship's not a beautiful thing or that work or that food or drink aren't things to be enjoyed. It's just that they pale in comparison to the joy that Jesus gives. And we see this because Jesus himself is the better master of the feast. We have better wine because Jesus is the Lord of our joy. Think about that. Jesus wants you to be happy. He wants you to be joyful, but he knows that you will not truly be joyful in anything less than himself. And he offers this freely. And I believe that one of the reasons that people reject Christianity is that we're afraid of what it's going to cost us. This doesn't sound like, this whole like laying your life down for Jesus thing doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Uh, What pleasure am I going to have to give up? What, what control am I going to have to give up over my life? What, what love am I going to have to give away in order to follow Jesus? And what Jesus promises us is something so much better that if we seek first his kingdom, we'll actually receive even more, all these things. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. In other words, aim at a romantic relationship and you may not get it and it's going to crush you. But aim at Jesus, who loves you perfectly, and even if you get that romantic relationship, it's not going to define you, because there is no perfect wedding. There is no better groom than Jesus. But if you don't get it, Jesus is enough for you, and you have a better love than any earthly person could ever give you. 
aim at control, and when you don't have it, you're going to feel anxious. But if you aim at Jesus, who orders all things, the God who is sovereign over everything that happens, we can trust him when it feels like our life is spiraling. Aim at justice, and we see the, the unrest in our world. We see what police brutality. We see all these things. We aim at simple justice, and if we get it, we feel somewhat satisfied. But if we don't, we feel hopeless. Aim at Jesus, who will make all things right. And we trust him as he does. We see that Jesus is the better master of the feast, but he's also the better bridegroom. He provides wine that never runs out. The old way of, of coming to God always comes up short. The wine that they brought ran out. And what you and I do, we bring something to the party. We bring our wine to the party. We bring what we think is going to satisfy us to the party. We, we bring our jobs, we bring our families, we bring success, we bring money. All of those things are going to dry up. Your job that you worked at for two weeks, you think is going to satisfy your soul. A month in, you're like checking, you know, indeed again. Your family, success, all, you can always add another zero to your paycheck. All of that's going to dry up. But what happens is, is when those things run out, what we typically do is we run back to that vat and we try to scrape the bottom for one more drop of that old wine. Jesus comes, and here's what's beautiful about this. He takes water that wasn't even meant to drink and makes it something that satisfies our souls. There's never been a more loving husband than Jesus. It's apply, and this, this joy applies to everything, and, and he delights to give you this joy. Lastly, Jesus points to something greater. Verse 11, we see it says that this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and then his disciples believed in him. They see his glory. It shows that he's God and Savior, but, but exactly how does God do that? We've got to jump back to verse 4 to see this. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's almost like Jesus is preoccupied with something else. His mind is elsewhere. And the key word here is my hour. My hour has not yet come. And this is going to be a major theme. We're going to see all through the gospel of John. Five times Jesus says, my hour is coming or my hour has not yet come. A couple of other times it's attributed as the reason he's not arrested because his hour had not come. And then five times toward the end of the gospel of John, he says, my hour has come. The time has arrived. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his death. And this is what John the Baptist meant when he said, Here, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, here's the one who's going to die. Here's the one who's going to pay for your sins. And so constantly in Jesus' gaze was this day that he would lay down his life as a ransom for many. But you know what else was on Jesus' mind? His wedding. His wedding to come. Now, you might be thinking, if you've read the Bible, wait a minute, where in the Gospels does it say that Jesus was married? I, you know, I thought he was a single man. You got to go all the way to Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright 
impure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. He was thinking of a day when he would rejoice with his people. He would rejoice with his bride, the church, and that he would present us as holy before his father. But here's the key. We only get to this wedding if Jesus suffers his hour. We only get to this day if Jesus suffers death. So what's a cup of joy for you had to be a cup of sorrow for Jesus. And so because of this, you can drink down the joy of God because Jesus drank down pain. You can drink down mercy because Jesus drank down wrath. You can drink down forgiveness because Jesus drank down guilt. You can drink down freedom because he drank down shame. Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins so that he could be with you forever. And as we close, I want you to imagine the joy that Jesus promises. Do you want that? And if you want that, you've got to go to his wedding. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And to be invited to that wedding requires three things. Number one, you have to admit that you're empty. I have nothing left. I've got nothing to give. I can't get in on my own good works or efforts. Secondly, you have to take credit for what Jesus did. Who got credit for what Jesus did in this story? The bridegroom. In Christ, as you stand before God, you are credited the perfect record of Jesus. What Jesus did for you, you have to take credit for that. Thirdly, you have to receive or take what Jesus offers, which is his life, his death, and his resurrection for you. Let's pray. 